Jesus, we thank you and we love you. And I thank you so much that you love us. Uh, God, we thank you for your mercy and your, your grace. You pour out on us more than we could ever um, imagine. And I just pray that you, you would help us to be humble enough to ask and to receive and, and not think we have to earn anything from you. I thank you, Lord, for uh, strength, giving me strength as I've been sick this week. And Lord, you have, uh, you have answered my prayers and the prayers of people praying for me. And we, we praise you and thank you for that. And so I, I believe and hope that the reason for that is because you have a special message for uh, us today. And I, I pray that you would speak your powerful words to our hearts. In your name I pray. Amen. Today is Palm Sunday. Happy Palm Sunday. Yay. Does, does anyone not know what Palm Sunday is? Okay. I will explain. Thank you, Kurt. You're very honest and humble. <clears throat> the silver fox. Oh, by the way, did we announce the food bank? Food bank is this Wednesday. Another announcement. No, not this Wednesday. 19th. Okay. That's, that's the third Wednesday? Third Wednesday. Okay. We are so confused. See what happens when I get involved in stuff? I should not. Okay. Food bank is not this Wednesday, but next Wednesday. But keep bringing food. We need food, so keep bringing the stuff in. We'll take it. All right. Today is Palm Sunday, and Palm Sunday is the day when Jesus, one week before he died, one week before Passover, he came into Jerusalem, and all the people were, uh, were, saw him, and all of his disciples were following him, and all his disciples were really excited, thinking that he was coming in to overthrow the Roman Empire. They knew this was the Messiah. They knew he was the king, and they were so excited, and they put their, their robes down on the ground, so, and he got on this donkey because there was a prophecy saying when the Messiah came, he would ride on a donkey. And so he, they got the donkey. He got on the donkey. They start worshiping him. They put palm branches on the ground, and, and, and they're all so excited. And he comes right over the hill of the Mount of Olives, and he sees the city of Jerusalem, right? Oh, this big hill and a big and it's up on the top of this, and he sees it, and he starts weeping. He starts weeping. Jesus does. And he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you would have known that this was your day, you could have, you could have, you could have turned to me. That's a good word. You could have turned. But what happened is they were wanting something different than what he was bringing. They wanted physical victory. They wanted to kick the Romans out. And he refused to do that because he was going to have victory over sin first. He came to die. And the people within that week rejected that plan. All the people did. They rejected that plan. They wanted a ruler. They wanted a king. And he came in and said, I'm your king, but I need to die. And they said, I, we, don't, we don't want that plan. And that's why Jesus started weeping because he knew that's what was going to happen. So that's Palm Sunday. That's today that we celebrate that Jesus came and he said, this is your day. Now there's a really neat prophecy. We don't have time to go all the way to it, but in Daniel chapter nine, we actually, he, they prophesied in the book of Daniel the day that Jesus would come. Daniel said it would be uh, uh, exactly 483 years from the command uh, given in the Nehemiah's day to restore the temple which is 185,880 days, 
from that day till Jesus showed up in Jerusalem as the Messiah, which is Palm Sunday, was exactly 185,880 days. And Jesus has said, this was your day. You should have known. You should have known. And they should have known. Maybe some of them did know. Maybe some of them were counting the day, and here comes Jesus, and they, oh, okay. But, but he wasn't what they expected, and so they rejected him. All right, so that's Palm Sunday. That's a little quick deal about Palm Sunday, just so you guys know what we're celebrating. I think downstairs the kids are making a cool little palm craft. They're so crafty downstairs. I don't know, maybe they'll even surprise us a little later. We'll see. All right, well, now the book of Exodus is where we're at, and we're going to see how that fits with what we talk about today. We're in chapter 3, verse 4. Moses has spent 40 years in Egypt being trained as the, to be the smartest guy in Egypt. He, he was next in line to be Pharaoh. He was, he was ready to take over. He was a great general. He was accomplishing great things. He was smart. He's talented. Then, But he, he knew that he was Jewish. He knew he was a Hebrew. And, and so he had this calling in his heart to deliver the Hebrews from their slavery. And, and so he, he, he saw an opportunity, and in his flesh, he tried to take advantage of that opportunity to free the Hebrews by killing an Egyptian in his flesh. And what happened? They found out, and he fled, because you can't do things in your flesh. And that's we studied that. So he spent the next 40 years in the desert. And we are now at the end of that period. He is 80 years old. He spent 40 years becoming somebody, and then 40 years becoming nobody or humble. And now... He is at this place where he's walking on the backside of the desert, taking care of sheep, not doing much. But he's just been walking with God, just kind of talking with God. And here he sees this burning bush that is not consumed. And we studied that last week, how this burning bush was a picture of who? Jesus, right? Jesus, this burning bush was a picture of Jesus, how it was burning, but it was not consumed, just like Jesus on the cross. Even though the cross was an instrument of death, he had life that endured. He rose from the dead. The death and the punishment of all our sins, like the fire of God, did not consume him, but he lived through it, and he now offers that eternal life to us. And so the conversation is now happening between Moses and Jesus, who is the voice in this burning bush, he is right there in the burning bush. And it says, So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And then he said, Do not draw near this place, but take your sandals off your feet, for the place which you stand is holy ground. We studied that last week, how God's holiness. Moreover, he said, This is where we continue. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we're going to spend a moment learning about these three, because why would God give such a long title for his name? Uh, I mean, couldn't he have just said, I'm, I'm the God of Abraham? And left it at that. Or, or I'm the God of Isaac. Why does he give all three of these? But it's really important and it's really neat that he gives all three of these and we're going to investigate that right now. Okay? 
So the God of Abraham, what does that mean? Why would God pick Abraham? Well, this shows that God is the chooser. The chooser. Or you could say he uh, is sovereignly picking. He's sovereign. Or the elector, you could say, if you want to use a big, fancy term. He chooses us. Not because of anything we do, or anything we did, or anything we could do. He chooses us because he loves us. That's what God did with Abraham. That's why he brings up Abraham. If you remember the story of Abraham, is that Abraham was just living in Ur of the Chaldees over in like where Iraq is today. And God came to him and he said, Abraham, I, want, I choose you. I want to give you a homeland. I want you to be the father of my people. And Abraham just believed it. So God chose him. And God choosing was a big part of Abraham's life because Abraham would go on to have a son <clears throat> named Ishmael. Do you remember him? Through who was his mom? Hagar. And Hagar was not Abraham's wife, but their servant. And so Ishmael, Abraham loved him. Abraham, he was Abraham's son, but he was not the son that God had promised because God had promised him a son through his wife, Sarah. And so Ishmael was not the chosen one. God was going to do things through his power. Abraham wanted to get things done in his flesh, and I figure out a way to get your promises, God. I mean, let me do my best, and let me figure out a solution. And so he took Hagar, and that was a big mess. It was a big problem. But the chosen one is always right. God, God always chooses, and God always chooses correctly. And Isaac had a heart after God and a heart after the things of God. And so this choosing is a big thing. Now apply it to us. God has chosen you. He's chosen you. And it says in the New Testament that we were chosen in Christ before the foundations of the earth. This is an act of foreknowledge and it's an act of love. So when God shows up to, to Moses in this burning bush and he says, I'm the God of Abraham, this is the type of thing that is going through Moses' head and his heart. Oh, okay, so you've chosen us as your people. You're choosing me now to have a conversation. Okay, now, then he's not done. He says, I'm the God of Isaac also. What does that mean? That means he's the giver of life. The giver of life. Remember Isaac's story. So Abraham, he didn't have a kid. Then he had Ishmael. God said, that's not the right one. It's going to be Isaac, the choosing. But then Isaac, so Isaac grows up. He's a young man, 20s or 30s. And God tells Abraham, I want you to sacrifice Isaac as a burnt offering to me. And so Abraham says, okay. He surrenders to the will of God, and he still believes in God's promise. So he said, okay, God, you must, are going to raise him from the dead. That's what he was thinking. So he goes up, and Isaac is stronger probably than his dad. His dad's like 120. Isaac's like 35. And, and So Isaac is going along with his dad, and he's like, hey, dad, where is the lamb that we're going to sacrifice because we're going to this mountain to sacrifice to God. And his dad says, you know what? It's, it, it's going to be provided by God. 
And in that, he, Isaac knew what was going on. Isaac knew that he was the sacrifice. And Isaac willingly went to the place of sacrifice, which is actually the same exact hill that Jesus would die on thousands of years later. The same exact hill. And so Isaac goes, and in their mind, both of their minds, Abraham and Isaac, Isaac was dead. He was as good as dead. They made the decision, we are going to obey the Lord, and in that surrender, our flesh is going to die. And in that, they were given new life. Now, God ended up stopping it because it was a picture of the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus would make, where God wouldn't stop his son from being sacrificed. But in that way, Abraham considered Isaac dead and received Isaac back from the dead. And so Isaac becomes a picture of new life. New life. How great do you think Isaac felt after that? He's like, we've been through the craziest stuff, Dad, and I am alive again. Now, God tells Moses, I am the God of Isaac, which means I am the God of new life. He doesn't take life away, God. He gives it. Yes, we must surrender all our hopes and our dreams and our life, but in exchange, God gives us the life of Jesus in our life, in our hearts. All of his holiness, all of his righteousness, it's deep, it's satisfying, it's purpose, it's meaningful. God in his power makes us new creatures. That's the New Testament verse for this. We are new creations, right? He gives us new life. And so this speaks of the, the theological word justification. So the first part, the God of Abraham, that, that teaches us the theological term of election. Then you have Isaac, and he teaches us the theological term of justification. And then the next word, the next son that he says is, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob will teach us about sanctification. Election, justification, sanctification. And in Jacob's life, we see God is patient, but he's willing to wrestle with our life through a long period and a long process until he changes us. That's what happened in Jacob's life. Jacob was born as a deceiver and a liar, and he, he, he didn't change for a long time. And through many different circumstances, the Lord walked with him, the Lord wrestled with him in his heart, and then finally came and wrestled with him in person until Jacob finally fully surrendered and his life was changed, his identity was changed, who he was was actually changed from the inside out. And that process that Jacob went through is called sanctification. And that's what happens in our life as well. And so these three names of I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, this actually talks about our life. And this is what God wants us to know. I am. And with you through every part of your life. The past, 
the present, and the future. In the past, I, I chose you. I elected you. In the present, I made you alive. I make you alive the moment you believe. And in the future, I will wrestle with you and I will change you and I will sanctify you. Every step of the way, it's all for God and it's all by God and it's all His, Him that gets the glory and it's His power that accomplishes each of these things. He never leaves us. How many of you could choose yourself for heaven? That's not something we... How many of you could make yourself alive when you're dead? No, and then how many of us can change ourselves, our desperately wicked hearts? We can't. We can't. These three traits, these three missions or or ministries of God are things that he does out of his love. He chooses, he makes alive, and he makes complete How wonderful is our God that he does all these things for us. It's all for his glory. He supplies everything and he guarantees everything. And he will complete the work he started in us. That's what I love about that story about Jacob. Because Jacob was a, a goober. So many times Jacob made just the worst mistakes. And I know I've been chosen. And I know I've been justified. But sometimes I feel like I make so many mistakes that am I really being sanctified? And I have to look at Jacob's life and be like, yep, the Lord is going to complete that which he started. So he reminds Moses of these three people also because with all three of these people, God made a covenant with them. He made a promise with them. And that means that he is a covenant God. He's a God who likes to make promises. And why do you think God likes to make promises? Because he loves to keep them. And he likes when we believe his promises and they can come true in our lives. He takes responsibility, God does, for each part of our life. He promises to elect you. He promises to give you a beginning with him, and he promises to continue on with you. These are his promises. So what does this new knowledge of God and and this reminder of God do in Moses' life? As Moses is standing here at the burning bush, and God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all those stories flood through, and the whole book of Genesis just goes through Moses' mind, and he's thinking about it. What does it produce in, in the life of Moses? Humility. Humility, that's the good response that we see. Moses, it says, hid his face, and he, for he was afraid to look upon God. What will knowing God more do in your life? It will produce humility and faith. That's what it will do, just like in Moses here. He, he's, he's like, wow, God, you're revealing so much of yourself to me, and, and it just... It, it breaks him. Wow, God, that's amazing. But it also, knowing, getting to know God, coming to church, reading your Bible, might also produce shame and fear. It might. Because Moses is now face-to-face with a very holy God. And I'm sure that Moses remembers his guilt. Because what did Moses do? He murdered someone. That's who God has chosen. That's who God has decided to use to deliver his people. 
a murderer. And that sin and that guilt comes up in Moses' mind and his conscience says, this God is holy, I am not holy, I am scared right now. Because sin cannot be erased. Or can it? Oh. We'll talk about that in a little while. Next, we see that God reveals his compassion. I'm going to teach you guys a uh, New Testament Greek word, and this one's really hard to say. So I want everyone to say it aloud with me after I say it. Ready? Splanknidzomahi. Good job. <laughs> Your faces all look like... <laughs> Splanknigzomony. Okay. I don't even know. Anyway, that is the New Testament word used for compassion. 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 I could. That's the English word. But I, I thought it was funny Greek word, so I wanted to see your funny faces. This is the word used most commonly in the New Testament for compassion. It's used 12 times, okay? And, and uh, once it was used for when the Samaritan saw the injured man walking along the road. He said he had compassion. He felt compassion for this guy who was beat up, bloody, laying unconscious on the side of the road. All right? The other 11 times, it was the God's compassion that's talked about. Two were in parables about God saving and forgiving sinners. So in other words, it describes God's emotion and God's feeling and God's compassion for sinners and, and saving them and forgiving them. And the other nine, so we're down to nine, are all when Jesus healed people. He healed people out of his compassion. And his healings show us what God's compassion motivates God to do. He's very compassionate. I'm, do, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time explaining this for a reason. Because this word, splatchnikomozomai, or whatever, <laughs> is the word in Greek for the inner parts of a man. The inner parts. It's the word they would use for the heart or the liver or the intestines, etc. And, and so the compassion that the word compassion that the New Testament uses is about the emotion that God feels, and it comes from this area. That's right. And it's, a, it's actually a pretty graphic word that the New Testament writers are using. Um, in our language, we would say the word guts. Guts. The guts. And in our um, culture, we have attached the same meaning, but we use it for courage. He doesn't have the guts to do it. See, we say the same thing. He's got the guts to jump off that bridge. He doesn't have the guts to stand up and speak his mind or... Whatever. We say that all the time. So our culture, we have attached it to the idea of courage. Well, in the New Testament, they use the same word and the same idea, but they attach it to the concept of love. 
and compassion. In other words, they're saying God loves you with all his guts, which I love that idea. He loves you with all his guts. He has the guts to love you. He feels the intensity of his love for you in his guts. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 22 is a great verse that many of us know. And it says, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. He's got the guts to love you. And for someone to challenge the love that God has for his people is, is just dumb. Like Jonah. Jonah was dumb. <laughs> but in the book of Jonah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find it here. We're going to read some parts of it. So go ahead and turn with me and try to find the book of Jonah. It can be challenging sometimes to find because it's so small. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. All right. There it is. And, and fast forward to chapter 4, the end of the book of Jonah. It's right before Micah. Um, it's right after Daniel. So if you see Daniel, go just a little bit further. Right after Obadiah and Amos. It's right in the middle of all those little tiny books. Right before the New Testament. Page 794. If you have this Bible. <clears throat> so God's compassion for us. He feels his compassion in his guts. He's got great compassion. And anyone who says God doesn't love you or God doesn't love the starving people in Africa or God doesn't love this person because they're sick or that person because they're bad or it, they're just wrong. They're wrong. Every time God said, no matter who the person was that God healed, God, it says Jesus had compassion on them. And it, it, his compassions fail not, uh, Lamentation says. They, they don't fail. He never doesn't feel love, really intense love for us. And it's not just his decision, I love all men, but I really don't like them. But I love them because I'm God, but I would destroy them if I could. It's not that kind of conversation going on. He's not like that. He has deep, passionate love. And Jonah, <laughs> Jonah was really frustrated by that. Look at chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. What displeased Jonah? Well, previously... God decided not to destroy the whole city of Nineveh. You know, obviously we know the story of Jonah that he got, he, God told him, go preach to Nineveh. And he said, I'm not going to go. So he went to Tarshish, got on a boat, got sent a storm. They threw him off the boat. The whale comes, swallows him up, takes him to the beach and spits him out. And he has to walk and he's all bleached white. And he walks all the way to, to Nineveh and um, he preaches to them, not nicely, not in love. He just says, God's going to destroy you in 40 days. And he turns around and walks away. And he goes to sit up on a hill to see them destroyed. Because he hates them. And they hear the message from this weird white guy. And they all repent. The king repents. Even the animals don't eat. 
They don't even feed their animals or give them water because they're like, maybe the animals sin too. It's a big repentance party going on. And they're like, we're so sorry. Fish slappers, you know, you guys seen the veggie test? They stopped slapping people with fishes. That was the best movie. Oh my gosh. Anyway. But this displeased Jonah exceedingly and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore, now, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, You're an idiot. No, he said, is it right for you to be angry? God's question to him, he's, God loved Jonah too. You know? But Jonah was, re, he, this whole book was written to us to show us that Jonah's heart was not right. And God's heart, he loved these people. Let's continue. So Jonah went out in the city and, and he, he gets this plan and the, the God, get, well, I'll just read it. So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city and he made a shelter and sat under it in the shade that he might see what be, might become of the city. And the Lord prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah. Oh, how nice and loving God is that it might be a shade for him to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But the morning dawned and the next day, and God prepared a worm. And so it damaged the plant, and it withered. And it happened when the sun rose that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head, and he grew faint. And he wished death upon himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, It is right for me to be angry even unto death. But the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored or made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in, in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and on their left and much livestock? And the book ends. The whole book ends with God telling Jonah, you don't understand my compassion. See, the people of Nineveh were greatly evil, but God was very loving. He longed for them to know him, and he sent Jonah to them so that he wouldn't have to destroy them. And they repented. Now, 150 years later, they fell back into sin, and God did have to bring judgment upon them. And they were destroyed at that time. But it wasn't until God saved many. Many turned their lives to him. God loved them. He even loved their stinking animals. God is, even loves animals. Does God love your dog or your cat? Yes, he does. And that's just weird if they're cats. So all of that is, is kind of an intro to our next little couple verses here in Exodus. 
is God's compassion, God's compassion. He said, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so I'm going to take care of things. I, I'm gonna, I've chosen you, I'm going to bring you back to life, and I'm going to change you guys. That's the God I am. I do those three things over and over and over in many people's lives. Why? And I'm compassionate. Look what he says here in verse 7, back in Exodus chapter 3. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. Do you just hear the compassion in his voice? I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. And I know their sorrows. You should highlight seen, heard, and know. Those are important words. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up. From the land to a good land and a large land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and of the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I also have seen the oppression which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Where was God when fill in the blank? How many times have you heard that? Where was God when 9-11? Where was God when Nazi Germany? Where was God when my dog died? God didn't do anything is the accusation. And maybe some people honestly answer, are honestly asking the question, but most of us are asking it with a heart of rebellion, saying, God, you failed. If you really loved me, you would not have let this happen. If you really loved them, you would not have let this happen. We have a heart that says we doubt that God loves because we don't understand what happened. But this scripture shows us that God sees. That was the word he said. That God hears. That God knows. That God comes down to deliver and to bring up. Now, those are what he said about Israel in this, the Hebrews here. But just apply it to your life. He sees all your troubles. He hears all your cries. He knows how deeply you hurt. And he has come down to deliver you and to bring you up. There are no maybes in God's plan here for the Hebrews, is there? Maybe I'll come down, you know, if, they're, if they qualify. Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe if they promise to never complain about anything. Maybe if they, um, ah, there's just no maybes. There's no maybes. He will not fail. Just like we read in Lamentations, his compassions fail not. His compassions don't fail. He, in his love, will see and hear and know and come down to deliver you and me. There's a, a hymn, an old hymn, written by Thomas 
Chris, Chris Holm, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, C-H-I-S-H-O-L-M, Chisholm, thank you. Always can count on you guys. I'll read you one part of it. Oh, to be like thee, full of compassion, loving, forgiving, tender, and kind, helping the helpless, cheering the fainting, seeking the wanderer sinner to find. Oh, to be like thee, oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer, pure as thou art, come in thy sweetness, come in thy fullness, stamp thine own image on my heart. I thought that was really cool. Also, check out the, another picture of Jesus right here. That he hears the state of sinners, the terrible state of sinners, then he comes down to deliver them and to bring them up. And here in this second part of this verse, we see another picture of Jesus. We're going to find him everywhere. If we look through the Old Testament, you find Jesus just everywhere. It's pretty neat. All right, so now we have the call of Moses and his response. He gives this commission to Moses. He says, come now, therefore I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So God has chosen to partner with Moses. And the question is, why? Why? Why take an 80-year-old shepherd who is a total has-been, why? He could have sent angels. God has plenty of them. And they're all very powerful. They could have freed the children of Israel. He could have showed up himself. I mean, he can do anything, right? He could have sent bears or dragons or robots or robot dragon bears with lasers on their heads. No, he could have done anything. Why choose Moses? Because God, in his wisdom, knows that using men to partner with bring him the most glory. He could have sent angels, but that's not as hard as getting a man, a rebellious, stinking-hearted man, to surrender to his will. That is the most glorious accomplishment in all the universe. When a human says, I love you, God, that is the greatest thing that ever happens in the world. And it brings God so much glory because God did not force that to happen. It was true love. Love demands choice. If you say, love me, and, I, and I'm going to force you to love me, that's not love. That's not love. There's no other option. If you say, you have to love me, there's no option. But when we say, God, I do love you. You have done so much for me. You have chosen me. You have made me alive. You have wrestled with me. And I do love you. God receives so much eternal glory. And it is weighty. It, it matters more than just about anything else in this universe. When one sinner says, I will love you. I will accept your grace to wash me clean, and I will love you. Men who voluntarily choose to not rebel, but instead submit to the will of God, they bring God the most glory. Angels must obey. They live up in heaven. 
they, they, their time of choosing and, and self-free uh, will, it's, it's over. Animals don't have any choice either. They obey God. But men have this free will, which is the most dangerous and rebellious thing in all of creation. But God loves us. He chooses us. He places his spirit in us and figures out a way to wrangle our free will to line up with his holy, perfect will. And it's a miracle. It's a miracle. And again, it's another picture of Jesus. Because in order for man to be saved, a man needs to do the saving. It's another reason why Moses was chosen. Because God didn't want to send an angel because Jesus isn't an angel. Jesus became a man. And that's why he must have become a man. He had to become a man or men cannot be saved by an angel dying for them. It had to be a man so that he could take all of man's rebellion inside of him. And as God poured out his wrath on Jesus, he could erase the guilt of every human being who would put their hope and faith in Jesus alone. And remember when I ask, oh, that sin can't be erased? Yes, it can. Through faith in Jesus. This explains the incarnation. Why did God, have to choo- Why did God choose Moses? Because it's a great picture of Jesus. He wants to use a man. He must use a man to bring deliverance to all the men. He had to use a man, Moses, to deliver all the men, the Hebrews, from their slavery. And he will use a man, Jesus, to deliver all of humans from the slavery of sin. Isn't that cool? Amen. All right, so verse 11. Moses said, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So Moses right away thinks there's some mistake. There's got to be a mistake. He even thinks, Maybe I tried that before. (laughs) I tried and failed. And now I am old. I am weak. And I am out of touch with the people. I haven't even seen a Hebrew in 40 years. Wow. But there's a principle right here, about serving God that's really important to think about. When you're truly called to serve God, you are going to feel the challenges more than those who just are doing it in their own flesh. You see, when Moses was young, when he was 40 and he was strong, he didn't feel, he didn't see all these challenges. He's just like, I could do it. I can serve God. Let me go be a missionary. Let me go do this. Let me go. Do... He was very self-confident in his abilities. But now that he's humble and he's broken, and he's like, who am I? These challenges are really, really big. He's got the humility part down. So now he just needs faith. And that's where God has, wants him to walk is in faith. Turn to to Luke chapter 9, verse 57, to see the same principle. Luke chapter 9, verse 57, through 62. Now it happened, as they journeyed on the road, that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, 
Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go preach the kingdom of God. And another said to him, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me go and bid him farewell, those who farewell who are at my house. And Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. See, Moses, when he was acting in his flesh, he was very confident. Oh, I can follow you. I can do what you want. He was self-sufficient. He was ready to take on the whole Egyptian army with just him. But now Moses, he's robbed of his confidence in his own abilities. That's what 40 years in the desert doing nothing has done to him. And that's exactly where God wanted him to be. Do you feel like you've been on the backside of the desert spiritually? That you feel like maybe not able to really do anything for God? Where's my ministry? Where's my, I've just been in this, you know, awful place and, and just bored and, and nothing really going on for so long. Be encouraged that that's exactly where God wants you. It is a process of teaching us to let go of self-sufficiency. And now, God is going to do something. He is going to direct the heart of Moses to a new source of sufficiency. A new, a new well to drink from. When the well in his own heart has run dry, he's, gonna, he's now going to show him there's a different well, a new way to have victory, a new way to live. And so he says back in Exodus chapter 3, so he said, I will certainly be with you. And this will be a sign that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will serve God on this mountain. God gives Moses two things. He says, I promise you my presence and I promise you victory. I promise you my presence and I promise you victory. This is a different way than self-sufficiency. My presence, I'm going to be with you, and I promise we'll win. We will win. In Matthew chapter 28, uh, Jesus, he's risen from the dead. He's just about to ascend into heaven. And so Jesus came and spoke to them and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Just like he's telling Moses, go. He tells all of us, go the same way. And he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Same promises that he gave to Moses right here in Exodus. He gives to you and to me and everyone in the church now. He says, I will be with you. Now, what's Moses going to do? He's going to go and he's going to deliver the people and miracles and blood and fire and all kinds of it's going to be amazing just because God's presence and God's promise. And that's what we have also. We have the ability and the same promises given to us that Jesus gave to Moses. And it's even Jesus talking to Moses, right? You have the very same promises from Jesus. 
And living by these promises is a different way to live. Living by these promises. You can't put confidence in yourself. God will beat that out of you. It all must be placed on God. There's so many times I've put confidence in myself, and you know what happened every time? I failed. But when I place my confidence in the Lord, even when it looks like I fail, I win. Whoa, what do you mean? You just stood up and and preached, and no one turned to the Lord. I don't care. God promised me I win. God promised me I win. So I can preach a thousand times, no one can ever turn to the Lord, and I still win. Do you see how living by faith is a guarantee win? You can't lose because God says, I'm with you and we will win. We just do his will. We just surrender. It doesn't matter how effective you think it is because it's not you doing it. We're going to see Moses has given the staff and Moses given these powers. And what if Moses is like, well, you know, what if they don't listen? Ha, he actually is. And God's going to say, I'm with you and I've already promised we win. How many times do you and I shrink back from doing God's will, maybe being bold to do his will, speak his word, love someone we should love, forgive someone we should forgive, because we doubt that it's really going to make a difference. Like we want, we want a promise that it's going to be effective, but that's not, the, that's not what God gives. God says, I will be with you and we will win. Will you trust me? Will you step out in faith and trust me? Living by the promises of God is a different way to live, but you have to surrender all your self-confidence. You can't trust. Oh, I have an argument to win this debate. Oh, I have the right way to, to, to save these people. I have a plan. No, you can't do it. We can't. And we come here on Wednesday nights and we pray because we're, we're, we have no plan for reaching this city. We have no abilities. We have no facilities. We don't have money. We don't have what other people say we need to reach this city, but we have God. And we come on Wednesday nights and we pray that God would use us and that God would save people in the city. We pray for specific people. And does it make a difference? All I know is God's with us and we win. So I can rejoice powerfully. I can rejoice and know, yes, we win. We're going to win. All right, verse 13 in chapter 3. Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent uh, me to you, and they will say to me, what's his name? What shall I tell them? What shall I say to them? Moses here, he asks a good question. We're closing on this. We're we're wrapping it up. He knows that people are not expecting right now to be rescued. Many of them actually worship the false gods of Egypt. Many of them are bitter and angry in their slavery. 
That's what, you know, a few hundred years of slavery will do to you. And they, uh, they want to know why this God that Moses is talking about should be trusted. Why should I believe you, Moses? What's the character, what's this character of this God you've been talking to? Why should I put my confidence in him? That's why Moses asked this question. And it's also a really good question for us to investigate for ourselves. Because if, if we are going to go to the lost and hurting and hungry people of this world, we need to know how to represent the God who sends us. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, this is what you're going to say to them. I am has sent you. And moreover, God said to Moses, you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and it's a memorial to all generations. Wow, so he brings back up the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob thing. He wants us to know that character, his election, his justification, his sanctification, the whole way, all the grace he gives us, all the loving things he does, he wants us to remember that. And we're going to tackle this all next week. <laughs> I am who I am? Ah, who is it? We'll just have to wait and see. But I have homework for you. Two things of homework. Two things of homework. First thing of homework, invite people who need to know who Jesus is. There's papers right there in the back. When you leave, just grab one or two. I challenge you to invite someone. Just see if the Lord would use you in someone's life, someone that needs to hear Jesus. Number two, try to investigate what Jesus says, I am, when Jesus says, I am. How many times does Jesus say, I am? What does he say, I am what? Just look at some of those things yourself this week. We're going to investigate those next week quite a bit. Next week is Easter. It just so happens to fit really well with our study here when we're talking about I am because he is the resurrection and the life, and that'll be a big part of what we talk about next week. So would you guys stand with me? Do we have a song? Let's sing a song then. Well, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we want to come to you and we thank you that you're the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and that you have the guts to love us, that your compassions for us are so <coughs> powerful and, and that you feel such great compassion. Lord, if you, you love all people and, and the people of Nineveh are a shining example to us of how you, you are patient and you're kind and you long for us to turn to you. And Lord, I thank you for the miracles uh, when, when we do turn to you. And if there's anyone in here who feels and knows in their heart that God is calling them to turn, I pray that they would turn to you now. Jesus, you have provided what we need. The gospel is that you came down from heaven. You became a man so that you could bear the penalty of all man's sin. And you did that on the cross. And then you rose from the dead showing that you are God and that you are, that sacrifice was accepted. And that all men who put their faith in you alone will have their, 
sins washed away. And we can walk with you and you will elect us and you make us alive and you wrestle with us and sanctify us as we walk with you. And Jesus, I pray that if there's anyone in here now who who feels that maybe for the first time or knows that you're calling them, Lord, I pray uh, that they would just call out to you with all their hearts. They'd repent of their sin and turn away from all other gods and all other things to follow you, Jesus. Not to change their their, um, efforts or give more efforts, but to trust in your efforts, trust in your works alone. Lord, we preach that gospel and I pray that we would all receive that gospel and believe that gospel with all our heart. Forgive us from when we turn away to other things and when we, we neglect the importance of your gospel and, and our fellowship with you gets stale and gets dry. And I pray that we would come back with full surrender. Lord, thank you for being patient with us when we fall and always restoring us and washing us clean. Father, we love you. And we pray that you would just fill us with your Holy Spirit this week. I pray we would be faithful to trust you and believe your two promises, that you're with us and that we win. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.